Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Speaking of Racism podcast. Now, before we get started on this very timely, very important episode with our friend Jonathan Perkins from Black and Podcast, we wanted to quickly say thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. And we wanted to invite you to our Patreon community. If you didn't know that Speaking of Racism has a Patreon community, you do now. And when you join the Speaking of Racism Patreon community, you not only get access to unedited podcasts, monthly webinars, and content not available to those in the public, you financially support this platform, this podcast, its growth, and its shaping information as we move forward. We look forward to you joining us and helping us as we grow and expand and move this conversation forward. So Jonathan Spencer Perkins is a public academic, higher education attorney, lecturer, and Black and Podcast co-host. His activism and academic work is rooted in anti-racist allyship, and the effects of individual and institutional bias. Jonathan's commentary on current events and social issues has been featured on Al Jazeera, Associated Press, PopCulture.com, and more. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I feel like we could not have a better person to be in conversation with about politics. Because Jonathan, let me just be honest. And, And Jen, let's just jump right in. What do you say? I say yes. Yes. I have been tremendously avoiding public conversations about the presidential election. I recognize that there is both privilege associated with that as well as trauma, right? This is not just because I don't care and it's not because I have lost hope. It is because I, along with all other um, Americans who voted differently in November of 2016, that night was devastating. Mm. And while it motivated and activated me to get involved, as I know it did for thousands of others, um, because we want a different outcome from this election coming up here in less than 60 days, but it's been a, it's been a, a fight. I have been having a hard time getting into these types of conversations. So I feel really good that we're having this conversation with you. Thank you. Well, I can absolutely appreciate that. And I thank you for having the conversation with me. You know, you're right that there is a level of, I think, sort of privilege, whatever that term means. And we can talk about that later that uh, comes along with um, with not talking about politics. I think that there is something to be said about the fact that there is a sort of privilege associated with not talking about politics and not entering into the realm of politics, Tina. But I think on the whole, you know, especially for women, especially for black and brown people, um, you know, talking about this president is traumatic just by itself. Um Thinking about the things that he said and done and continuing to say and do can be traumatizing for people, you know? Um, and so it just is 
you don't you're not used to talking about a president that blatantly you know makes fun of people with disabilities or you know mocks military members as he just so recently did or you know says when the looting starts the shooting starts for protesters of of the George Floyd murder so like it's not like we're just talking about policy issues which i would put in that category of like oh yeah you're privileged to not have to talk about policy issues but for for people who fit into these groups of historically oppressed demographics that you know historically oppressed by white men who are wealthy that you know and trump just so squarely fits right into that and and is like that abuse sort of on steroids i can't i can't really fault you so i mean you know this is i'm i'm happy to sort of that we have the three of us i think know each other enough that this is sort of a safe space and a, a brave space, I like to call them, um, for talking about politics, because it's this is our real lives. Our real lives could change and be shifted around in a way that is that is very scary for a lot of people. And so um, I don't think anyone would fault you for opting out for, of that as long as you can. But we're getting close to the election. So I think it's time to have the talk, right? It is. It definitely is. So now that we've gotten my confession out of the way about how I don't want to have this conversation, let's have this conversation. Here we go. Hey. <laughs> Every year, for as long as I've been voting, um, since I think the first election I voted in, and then you guys are whatever, don't call me a child, but I'm young. Uh, th the first election I voted in, I believe, was Bush v. Kerry in 2004. And so every year they say, this is the most important election of our lifetimes, right? Um, that's just like a thing that people use to get people to vote. They said that with Trump, because, and I truly think back in 2016, I truly think that that was the case because of all the stuff he was saying and promising to do beforehand. And I remember sitting in my, you know, in my uh, friend's living room with like six or seven of my friends who were all white and watching the returns come in in 2016 and just thinking, you know, thinking, I, so I, along with everyone, didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win. But as he started to, as the returns are getting added, and it looked like he was going to, I'm just sort of chuckling to myself, because it wasn't that I didn't think he was going to win, because he couldn't, it was just because I thought that I knew politics better than I did, and people better than I did. But once he started to be clear that he was going to win, I just was sort of chuckling like, this is wild. Like, this is sort of white folks being, you know, outlandish in this country. And we've seen them do uh, stuff like this before, you know, electing um, these sort of outlandish figures who who say all these horrific things and so and and do all these horrific things. And so it was just sort of a realization that, like, this is going to be really bad under this guy. Since then, we've seen all of the things you could imagine a horrible person do. Um, we could just do, we could dedicate a whole podcast series on just listing off the things that you've already forgotten that Trump has done. And that's including being impeached uh, recently and not albeit not removed from office. And so when I talk about this upcoming election, which is the same incumbent, Donald Trump, running against a pair that I would say is an imperfect pair, as usual, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. That's always the case with politicians. But a pair that I think is perfectly situated to to beat him. All that being said, this is still, and I've never meant this more, this is still the most important election of our lifetimes. And we know that because of the ways that Trump has behaved since he was acquitted from his impeachment. 
So he's gotten so much worse and so much more outlandish um, and dangerous that I can only imagine if he's reelected what he would do um, with sort of carte blanche. He already sort of has carte blanche, free reign. Um, and the only thing that's checking him is the the voters. Um, and so if he's reelected with four more years to do whatever he wants, I, I can't even imagine. I will speak for me as one of those folks who is absolutely not thrilled about the Democratic ticket. What is it that those of us who feel this way need to know about why it's still so important for us to vote, regardless of the fact that we are not thrilled and excited about a Biden-Harris ticket? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm in that group, too, of people that is not people that are not thrilled. I was a big um, Elizabeth Warren fan. Um, and I, you know, I think there are a number of, um, there are a number of vice presidential picks that, um, that could have brought a lot to the table. I don't mind Kamala Harris, but her history is one that is difficult for someone like me. Um, her history as a prosecutor in California, um, is something difficult for someone like me. I, unlike a lot of people, I always say that whenever it's a prosecutor, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. They only really care about this, it seems, because she's also a black woman and that makes her mean and angry and, you know, all the other stereotypes. Uh, but actually, you know, Amy Klobuchar is another good example of someone who I was like, eh, I don't really, you know, she was a prosecutor in Minneapolis forever and ever and could have prosecuted the cops that, you know, that knelt on George Floyd's neck before they did it. So I don't really mess with her either, you know? Um, and so, uh, but it's interesting because Joe Biden is this sort of person that has been running for president, it seems, ever since I can remember, um, and has is known for gaffes, as the media calls them. He has a history of, of you know, not treating Anita Hill um, with the respect and dignity that she deserves when she came to testify before the Senate um, at Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing years ago, who was, you know, she was complaining of, of sexual harassment from Clarence Thomas and Joe Biden was running that that Senate uh, committee. And so he has that to sort of answer for as well. Joe Biden was the author and pusher of the 1994 crime bill. Um, which, as we all know, is, you know, played a, a vital role in mass incarceration and, and exacerbating mass incarceration. Um, Joe Biden recently said that that bill was the right bill at the right time. Um, he said that in, in a debate recently. And so that just made my stomach turn, right? Like, I hate to do the lesser of two evils thing, because I think that that is a dangerous way to vote. And in our two party system, we are so often faced with that. But this is these are extenuating circumstances. Donald Trump is so much more dangerous than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris than Donald Trump, not only himself, but the infrastructure that he has cultivated of people in his administration that won't say no to him. So we're finding out all of these horrific things that he did and said about military members, about intelligence folks, things that you would never, that a president, that no one in government, much less a president, whatever, should ever say or do, he has done. And we're finding all these things out now. 
right before the election because people are sort of freaked out and they want to tell what they've seen. You know, Donald Trump is upending principles and norms that we've lived, that our country has lived by, and doesn't care that he's doing it at all. And so, you know, some of those norms are from things like not doing campaign events on government property or using government money. Donald Trump turned the White House into a campaign event, you saw, um, for the RNC. That it goes from that to responding to, you know, the president should, uh, there's a norm that the president would respond if there is a crisis and people are dying. President Trump just didn't do that and isn't really doing that. And so now we're about to hit 200,000 people dead from coronavirus, and Trump still is making fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask. And so um, there are these things that aren't illegal that Trump is doing that are just really horrible and deadly um, that no other president would ever do. And so Trump sort of stands in a league of his own in terms of, I mean, we're not even getting into the crimes, right? We're not even getting into the fact that seven of his campaign um, advisors are now convicted criminals. Um, we're not getting into the fact that he openly welcomes still interference from other countries and in our election. And so that is, and that's something that is, you know, I'm a politics nerd and unless you're a politics nerd, you might not care about that. Um, but inviting another country, an adversary country into our system to help determine who is or isn't going to be president is very, very scary. So that is my very long way of saying, Tina, we have to talk about this because it's too important not to. Literally, people will die if we don't. It is really something that this election is going to, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be something that is is a game changer for us. And do we have perfect stewards in in, uh, in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Absolutely not. No, Joe Biden is, I am not even, I'm nowhere close to his biggest fan. Um, and same with, with Kamala Harris, but it is important enough that I see that, of course, I'm going to try to get as many people to vote for them as possible. And not to be understated, a black woman vice president um, with, you know, one heartbeat away from the presidency when her, the president she's serving under is a very old white man, the oldest white man um, to become president is, uh, is not nothing. Um, and so the future of the party uh, is pretty cool and seems pretty bright in terms of breaking some of these glass ceilings. Um, and that's being done very intentionally. There's, it's intentional that Kamala Harris is a young, a young up and coming uh, politician because she is, um, I think they're planning for her to be the sort of future of the party, which, you know, I don't hate. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. You have our attention. I, I wanted to bring voice to that perspective just because it doesn't get much airtime. The perspective of this two-party system sucks, and I'm not going to love voting for this Democratic ticket, even though I still am. So now that that's out of the way, let's get to maybe some more productive conversations given the moment and times, yep. which is I would love to hear yep. you share a couple of things. Would love to know... How can people look at this presidential campaign through an anti-racist lens? That's the first thing I'd like to ask. And then the second thing is, what would you say to those independents, those people on the fence, 
Um, and those Republicans who have been watching the past four years of this administration and are feeling like this does not represent the party that they want to be a part of? Yeah, I mean, it's they're great questions because, you know, this is in terms of anti-racism, um, I look at voting as a tool, um, one of many tools that we can use to bring about our sort of anti-racist policies and ultimately an anti-racist, you know, and racism-free society. Um, so voting, a lot of people think, I, th I think a lot of people think that voting is the biggest thing you can do. And I, I disagree with that. I think it's about mid-range in terms of how important it is. Um, I think it's more important this year because of who the candidates are, because we have Donald Trump in the White House. But on the whole, you know, um, Joe Biden's not someone I would be excited about voting for. He's not someone that I am excited about voting for, even with the context, even with the, the context that we're in. And so I tell people that, you know, voting and being involved in politics has to be one anti-racist arrow in your quiver. It is it has to be one tool that you use out of many. And so, you know, I'm going to get as many people to vote for the Democrats as I can, because those people, the Democrats will create an environment that is more conducive to an anti-racist framework, if that makes sense. So is Joe Biden racist? Yes. Is the, and I'll say that with no qualification, is the system of voting in our country racist? Yes. Is there gerrymandering? Yes. Is there voter suppression? Yes. Do, do Democrats have to do, and black people and brown people have to do more and win more to do just as well as, as the, as Republicans? Republicans would have you think that the country is split 50-50, and that's just not true. There are more of, of us, people that vote liberal, um, than there are the other side. And so it's because of this racist way that the system is set up and how racism allows one group to do better than the other one when they shouldn't. Um, that is a sort of testament to where we are. So, you know, can you vote for the, for an, you know, a 78 year old white guy who literally wrote the um, 1994 crime bill and call yourselves anti-racist? Um, <laughs> I feel like that's a question that I don't get paid enough to answer and don't know an answer to, but I like, but I like to think that you can, because not every action that we take along our anti-racism journey is perfect, right? So not everything you do is ideal along the road that's carrying you in the right way of anti-racism, if that makes sense. If everything I do in my life is 100% um, maxed out in terms of anti, the anti-racism that I'm infusing into it, you know, all my stuff that I do at work all my hobbies, my own podcast, everything that I tweet, everything that I, all my friends who talk to me know that they're always going to be hearing about race when they talk to me. It's I'm at a hundred percent all the time for voting. It's going to be like 70% this time. Right. So like it is the right direction. It's not, it's not taking us the other way. Um, but it is, after all, voted putting a black woman in the White House and a a woman of of you know Asian descent in the in the White House 
um, when that's never happened before. That's something that is groundbreaking, right? Um, and setting the stage for the future of other things that will never ha- that have never happened before. Um, but can I call myself anti-racist and vote for Joe Biden? The answer is yes, but I don't feel great about it because there's a lot that comes along with him and his history. And so, Tina, to your question of independence and disaffected Republicans, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of groups crop up all over social media. And we saw a bunch of them during the Democratic National Convention of these sort of disaffected Republicans who who are completely distraught with how they've seen what they're seeing happen in their party. And they're willing to go on record and say, I'm voting for for Joe Biden. You know, Colin Powell's one uh, yeah. of a big name Republican that are there. And there were a bunch of them during the DNC who were coming on to say, hey, other Republicans who are so fed up with this, you know, this outlandish behavior from this president. Joe Biden is someone who at least plays by the rules and at least is a like principled person and is caring and has been through tragedy and loss that we can, you know, sort of trust that he has a sort of moral compass, even if he's done a lot of other damage. You know, part of what pisses me off about Joe Biden is he's not even willing to take responsibility for what the crime bill did. Now, he said, like I said, just recently, he said it was the right bill at the right time, for example. So that's one of those things. It's like, oh, God, he's still like an old white guy. And I can't even um, I can't even get past that. He can't even hear himself what he's saying, you know, um, that he he would win me over in a better way if he would say that was a mistake and I will do everything I can to reverse it when I'm in, in power, you know? Um, and so. And just really quickly, that's not unheard of because that no. is what we saw Clinton do with regards to her, her and, and, and Bill Clinton's um, responsibility for the crime bill. Absolutely. So it's possible. Absolutely. They, they made a, 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 a strategic choice for him to, to say that. Um, but I think they're trying to make up for it in that they're surrounding themselves with that's another thing, surrounding themselves with, you know, so many black and brown voices. Um, you know, their campaign directors are people of color. I know a few people who work on the in the Biden campaign and they're all I don't, I don't actually know any white people who work in the Biden campaign. Uh, that doesn't mean that they they uh, are there. They, of course, are. But. There are a ton of voices that are being given real, you know, real credence and real respect, you know, not just there as sort of placeholders. And so, um, you know, this is to to sort of go back to your question, Tina, about Republicans and independents. You know, the fact that so many people have come forward, so many Republicans and independents have come forward and said, hey, this is a problem. We have to vote for Joe Biden just so our country can exist afterwards because Trump is just dumping things upside down in terms of our safety and intelligence and all the things you don't really even think about. Um, and so the fact that they could do that and come up with this seemingly endless list of, of Republicans who are willing to, to switch over um, should sort of tell us something. Um, yeah. But there are some people who are going to just vote for Trump because he's doing part of what he said he was going to do, right? Like some people who are abortion is their issue they're gonna vote for trump because that is he's put on more you know he's gotten more judges confirmed district court and federal court judges 
already than Obama got confirmed in his all his whole eight years. And so there, you know, he's doing part of what he said he would do. So it's a lot. It It is just um, I think the people who are going to decide this election are going to be college educated white women, unfortunately. Um, and that is just what the all of the sort of statisticians and the polling people are saying. It's the suburban white college educated women who voted for Trump, you know, to the tune of 53 percent in 2016. You know, white men, of course, on the whole, will vote for Trump. Um, but white women in disproportionate numbers voted for him. And so it, it'll come down to who those folks vote for. It, it is it's terrifying to me. I really do think it is. Um, it's one of those things where like everyone always says, oh, if, if such and such wins, I'm moving to Canada or I'm moving to, you know, everyone always threatens to leave. But we've had a very serious talk in my in my family about what we would do if Trump won, because we're all so tired and distraught. And it would be hard. It would be hard to, to stay here and, and fight um, if Trump won. And so I just am I'm pleading with people, really, when it comes down to it. Um, absolutely. And Jonathan, you may not know this. You are actually speaking to one of the black folks that has moved out of the country, um, largely due to the systemic racism that I have watched over the past couple of years and, and yeah. the inactivity and inaction that I've seen any change or, or just few changes. So I, I completely um, am coming from that perspective. So just thank yeah. you for mentioning that. Um, because nobody wants to think about what will we do if we have right. to look at another four years with a Trump presidency. So right. you, you, know, you mentioned something about the disproportionate numbers in which white women voted for Donald Trump, which produced the Trump 2016 presidency. Yeah. And this is something that um, Syra Rao, actually, who was um, a guest that we had on our last episode, spoke to this as well. We understand that for the Democratic Party, there is a tremendous focus on Black voters. We know the power of Black voters. We know the power of, um, of, of the millennial voters as well. So who should we be looking to um, with regards to making a, a tremendous impact? And, and maybe you, you kind of already, you said this, but I think I, I'm just asking for clarification about which groups hold the most weight and what we need to know about that and understand about that. Yeah, so it is. It truly is college-educated white women who live outside of cities. So uh, it is, you know, on the whole, that group is big enough and has the voting power enough to decide this election. White women who live, who are, who are, uh, who have gone to college and who live in cities, on the whole, vote Democrat. That's usually that's just people that live in cities vote. Democrat. That's why you see Trump talking so much crap about cities all the time, uh, because it's just that's just how um, our politics have come to be in this country. White women who in 2016 didn't trust, and I'm putting that in big quotes, didn't trust Hillary Clinton for some reason, um, putting this huge air quotes around that, meaning white women who fell victim to the patriarchy and sexism against Hillary Clinton even though they're also women, those folks and, and women who are, despite their college education and despite their otherwise intelligence, are racist and fearful of people who are not like them. You hear us always saying that, like, don't conflate uh, being dumb with being racist because there are plenty of very smart people who are racist who are afraid these women 
being afraid of their quiet neighborhoods being taken over by gangs and black and brown people coming in to sell drugs. I'm putting these things in sort of big air quotes because, of course, they're stereotypes based – these are sort of right out of the 80s and 90s of the sort of war on drugs stereotype. But Trump is sort of tapping into that, and there's a reason he's doing it because he's just not really good at telegraphing politically. He just says the thing out loud. He says the quiet part. He's saying, I need these white women in suburbs because that is the group that will decide this election. And I keep I'm just singling out white women in the suburbs with college educations because statistically this is who's important for this election. But you'd be surprised talking to them, their these beliefs that they have. Yeah, the the things, the fears I just listed are actually palpable fears for a lot of them. And they're steeped in racism and, and sexism as well. Um yep. and it is you know, when they when I've heard so many women saying we couldn't I just don't something about Hillary just it just rubs me the wrong way. I just can't trust her. You know, I just can't trust her. And it's like, but you trust, you trust Donald Trump. Like that is the the notion that we, that there's even a comparison of who you could trust or not trust compared to, uh, you know, comparing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I, I don't see how that comparison is even made without sexism existing, you know? Um, and so it's tough though, because those women are the, are the, in today's age, they're the ones who are being called out as Karens, as, um, you know, you know, women who are calling the cops on black people in their neighborhood because they look suspicious. Those are suburban college educated white women. Um, and so they are. In my mind, this is not a an easy. You know call for them if it were if everything were left up to you know black women this would be different because we know how black women have voted and we know that no offense to you jen but black women have sense when it comes to politics and it is and they've shown that over and over and over again right um and so uh i'm constantly shocked by how many white people generally but white women especially and i'm giving white women the sort of the rough deal here because it's so much more surprising to me it's white men straight white men don't surprise me at all when they do anything outlandish right because we've seen it all um donald trump's putting out a proclamation that you know trans people can't serve in the military sure why not because of course he's a he's a straight white guy who's afraid of afraid slash hates trans people and has been do, doing his damnedest to, to hurt them his whole life. That doesn't surprise us, right? Like, but when a white woman who experiences sexism her whole life and lives in the patriarchy is also very racist um, and 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 very sort of self-hating sexist, right? Like against women, um, mm-hmm. it's hard to convince those folks. But it it is sort of about meeting them where they are. And I found that the, and as much as I hate to say that about people who I just have called racist, meeting racists where they are, the the parallel between women's rights and gender equity, it really does work well when you are trying to illustrate a point to a woman about race and about the damage that policies can do when it comes to racism. Um, and I I always am looking for opportunities to use those parallels as an example to convince white women of of this i was just in a conversation the other day on twitter um because that's where my life is lived now 
um, that, that I was in a meeting the other day and I had, it was all, it was all black and brown people in the meeting. Um, and I was talking to someone on Twitter about how it was so freeing and open, um, that, that, that I was in this Zoom room with like five other black people and that's it, you know, talking about UCLA policy, um, which is where I work. And so she was saying immediately, well, that's just racist, right? Um, and I said, okay, so here we go. This is a good example. Woman I don't know on Twitter. Can you imagine a difference in tone and feeling and atmosphere if the one day you went into a boardroom and it was all women in the room? Um, can you imagine how that meeting might be more effective and efficient and comfortable and you wouldn't have to get over the weird um, dynamics of men being gross, sexist men and like checking you out and all those weird things that men do that are harmful to women? Can't you imagine it being different if it were all women? And she's like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. It's like, right. So that's why representation matters. Right. So this is a good example. So one platform is all about representation and all about inclusivity and if nothing else in numbers right and one is not about that and that's trump and so he's about i mean look at the look at his cabinet look at the photos of every group of people he's surrounded by it's always old white men um and so that is a way i've been able to sort of meet those college educated white women where they are and just at least give them pause right I am not banking on white men. I'm not trying to convince white men to vote for Biden because it's too it's too much. There's nowhere I can meet them, you know, Um, and with college educated white women who like all of the experts um, are saying this is going to come down to um, that you can meet them in their sort of in the sexism plane uh, and and the sexism on that plane. You know, they 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 know and can exp- they can imagine a world that would be different without sexism um, is my very long way of saying that. And so I try to use that as a tool as well. But Jen, you want to hop in? And- I just have, I mean, this is such a big topic and I am in so many directions on it. Yeah. And it's so deeply troubling to me to see how people have allowed themselves to be manipulated into buying into certain narratives. And I would say like, I mean, because it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is you see a glimmer of hope or possibility in the college educated white woman who lives in the suburbs as being somebody that you can appeal to. And I appreciate that. And at the same time, I don't put a lot of hope into that because what I see is so many people are just tuned out. They don't want to pay attention to what's going on. They don't want to follow the president on Twitter, which is what I say. If you are going to vote for the man, you need to follow him on Twitter and watch what he says, watch how he stokes certain things, watch what he retweets and reshares and take a look at what's going on here. Because right now, what we have happening in this country and what I see emerging, like you were saying earlier, Jonathan, is this is a matter of life and death. And this isn't a matter of life and death just from climate change. But right now we've got protests that have been going, uh, you know, going on all over the country. Right. We've been talking five about months that. now, six right. months now. And yep. I have friends all over the country in a number of these protests. And right from the beginning, 
I started seeing this counter narrative emerging where people are saying, oh, but the protesters, they're rioting, they're looting, they're doing this, they're doing that. And, and they had all these outlandish stories. And these are people coming to me, coming into my DMs, saying these things. And I'm like, well, wait a second. I have been on the ground. I have tons of people I know on the ground. I've not seen any of what you're talking about. And in the small instances where I've seen things, it's been interesting to see who's actually starting things or doing things. And you're kind of curious, like, are they right. really from the community that they're protesting? Right. right. And like, we just had this report come out that shows that 93% of the protests have been peaceful demonstrations. And we're talking peaceful demonstrations all across the country, all across age range, ethnicity, race, like yep. all yep. this variety and unity and and movement toward this. And then we're seeing this emergence of the Boogaloo Boys, of right-wing white supremacist militia groups. All of these things going on. We've got the situation in Kenosha with Rittenhouse and the president being absolutely unwilling to make a stand against this. Like, to me, and, I'm watching and defending this him. Stuff. He defended him. Right. Yeah, right. Outright. And then, yep. I mean, I'm watching this stuff and I'm screaming into what feels like a void in terms of trying to figure out, like, how can I even get people to see this or to understand this? And it's interesting because I started listening to that. You were talking about Republicans who are taking a stand against Trump. And I think that's what the Lincoln Project is. Is that correct? That's correct. So the Lincoln Project is a group that was founded in part by um, George Conway, who is Kellyanne Conway's husband. Kellyanne Conway is one of the top. Yeah, one of the top advisors to the president who actually just left her job. Um, Did you not know they were married? I didn't know he started it. Like, yeah, what's was, that oh, yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. He was, like? He was part what? of the. He's part of the the Lincoln Project group. Um, and there's a bunch of uh former or there's a bunch of current sort of high level Republican sort of operatives like him. Um, who are I guess have found some really good uh producers and they make they put out these great, really, really effective ads. Like they're just. Oh, I was just going through their lincoln project feed on twitter the other day and it's just like wow the every one of these ads is so good um Mm -hmm. in that there's just so much horrific content in them um that that sort of scare you into voting for trump but yeah no it is there's all of these yeah these groups that are coming up that are saying like this is yeah this guy's dangerous and we're republicans and we're gonna say so lincoln was a republican that's why we're calling it the lincoln project um yeah yeah so sorry i cut you off No, no, no. So it's been interesting to kind of listen to the perspective of some of these people. I was just listening to their podcast yesterday and pretty blown away by how absolutely unequivocally opposed to Trump's presidency they are. And it was it was hopeful to hear this because it's like, okay, we've got the former governor of Michigan, uh, Snyder, who came forward to endorse Biden. We've got uh, Colin Powell endorsing Biden and all of these different people endorsing Biden. And the question I have is for like for people who are kind of similar to Tina and I, because I have also historically just been like 
unimpressed by the two parties, by the two party system and very privileged in this idea that I'm just going to vote my conscience because that's what I believe. And I don't want to be that person that votes against somebody. But I will say this. I've never been and I've never felt so absolutely convicted to vote against somebody than I am currently to the extent that I'm excited to vote for Biden, excited to vote for whoever isn't Donald Trump. Right. 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 And Uh, that is something for me. But I am so fired up right now and so troubled by what I'm seeing emerge in this thing that some people are hashtagging like a new civil war. Right. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so there's a lot. So, so, okay. So first let's go back to what you were saying in terms of, you know, um, the, the groups of people who are, who are, uh, turned off by the, this movement that we're seeing and that, and this, you know, who are against the, um, the protests and the demonstration. So I have so many thoughts. One, um, the, you know, this is normal. This is normal for big civil rights movements. Um, so there is a some good polling. I think it was, I forget, it's Gallup or one of the big polling organizations from that did this back in during the civil rights movement of the 60s, during the sit-ins, the freedom rides, all that, polled the country. And I think it's 65% of the country um, thought, that Martin Luther King and the civil and the freedom riders, et cetera, were doing more harm than good. Um, they yeah. disagreed with their, uh, the way they're expressing themselves. They thought they were wanting too much too soon. Um, just the overwhelming majority. And that's of all people in the country. If you took just white people, I assume that number is much higher. Um, and so this is, it's normal that during the push toward justice and the push toward equity and equality the powers that be on the whole are not going to be happy with it right um so that that's something that we will look back and those people will lie they will whitewash their memories and say yes i remember seeing those uh protests happening around the country we were in a quarantine we were locked down and i remember seeing it on the news and being so proud of the young people etc cetera, etc cetera. that's what they'll say but that's not what they're thinking now. Now they're disgusted how you've described. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. So those people can just go away and like kiss my ass, right? Like, because I don't, they're people who are going to just fit their history, in, their version of history into whatever suits them best. That's one. Two, the rest assured, don't let the people who are concerned with the violence that is occurring in the, of our protests or whatever it ends up being after this is all said and done, don't let them scare you into control, into an unrealistic version of what's happening here. Right. So everyone wants peaceful protests. That's the big thing that all our politicians say, well, it's fine as long as they do it peacefully. I can't remember an effective protest throughout American history that was done peacefully. I truly can't non-violently yes violence is different right violence is force to hurt someone but protests aren't supposed to be peaceful right they're supposed to disrupt 
the society. It's supposed to be people sitting in the middle of an intersection shutting down the highway. It's supposed to be people um, shutting down a courthouse because they're, they don't they think justice has been miscarried there. Um, so the notion that we have to protest peacefully, don't let that um, control the way that you're assessing these protests. No, no peaceful protest has ever been um, effective. They're supposed to up their demonstrations. Um, they are supposed to shut down the status quo. Um, peaceful to me just means easy to ignore. Um, and, and so they want peaceful protests. I, I, you know, to see someone, to see a police officer kneeling on someone's neck and with his, his hand in his pocket, like he is dressing a, a deer that he's just shot. And hearing this man scream and plead for his mother and say, I'm going to die, you're killing me. And to have him sort of loose his, you know, bowels right there in front of everyone on the street. Um, and, you know, and then him ultimately die. You're not going to find me peacefully protesting that. You're, there's no way. I'm going to be out in the street and keep to myself and be quiet and non-disruptive over that. I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be boisterous. I'm going to be mad. And honestly, I would never, I would never destroy property myself. But if, if George Floyd's mom wants to throw a brick through a damn target window, could you blame her? Right? Yeah. Like, so this is, you know, I don't ever think, there, so that crosses over into sort of violence for me when you're you're hurting something by force. Um, but but this is the notion that we're even putting property damage and disruption of suburban neighborhoods onto the same plane as public lynchings of black people um, is to me racist obviously uh and and disturbing and we're allowing this sort of because our party and i'm i promise you i'm going somewhere with this because our party is a two-party system we allow every argument every potential argument in our country every topic to be pitted as a clear thing versus another clear thing and in this country that's not the case there's no there's no two sides of police kneeling on people's necks and killing them there's no other side to that there's no you know of there's no other side to shooting someone in the back seven times as they're walking away from you as a law enforcement officer there is not a conservative side to that or a liberal side to that and so trump is trying to and his administration is trying to use this moment that we're in to make it, he they've read those polls from 1960, right? They know there's probably like two thirds of the country that doesn't really that isn't really paying attention to what's going on for one and two says if it's they'll say if it comes down to between peaceful protest and violence and if the Republican Party represents peaceful protest and the Democrats represent violence, they'll vote for Republican. But that's not we can't let them boil it down into this sort of two sides thing there's no sides you know and so um 
that to the that's something I really try to tell people and then you know, but also to remind people that like look, to the extent that there are people who are gonna who are against these the Democratic Party, they're against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because they think that though that that platform represents the people who are throwing bricks through the CVS and through the target window, like those people, I'm just going to let them be in the 60, whatever percent of people from the 1960s Gallup poll, right? Like those are going to be the people who are going to whitewash their history and come up with something different. But the people who are actually reachable, who you can, who are saying like, well, I just wish that they wouldn't be so, I wish they wouldn't set things on fire. I wish they wouldn't, you know, um, you know, light the burger king drive through on fire or whatever so it's like true i wish they wouldn't too but that has nothing to do with kamala harris and joe biden right um that has to do with people who are angry that justice has not been done and one party is more willing to listen to those people and hear them out than the other party is and every survey that i've seen on this on these current issues has shown that the majority of the american people think that we should listen to these issues and that police should be reformed and that money should be spent elsewhere and that a guy with an automatic rifle in a bulletproof vest shouldn't be who we call to show up at our house when our uncle is having a, a psychotic break you know it's they are not the people that we need to call. And so we should one party's open to listening to that and one isn't. And so that's where I try to meet those people. Don't make it about Black Lives Matter anymore for these. Again, I'm going to just say this till I'm blue in the face. These college educated white women don't make it about black lives versus blue lives versus, you know, it's just about is one party willing to listen to the people who obviously there are millions and millions of people who are protesting and demonstrating. And one party calls them thugs and one party calls them, you know, calls Black Lives Matter a hate symbol. And one party calls, um, you know, calls them uh, anarchist and 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 Antifa thugs. And so that's sort of how I meet those folks. Um, but with the with the understanding that like a good two thirds of Americans are going to and even more of white Americans are going to look back on this in the very near future and say, Oh, I was totally fine with this the whole time. I just, um, you know, I remember watching these protests. And, and when in reality, they're very adamantly against them. And so we just have to weed out those people from the, cra- from the sort of larger crowd, I think. And those people will vote for listening and for an ear and for, um, for seeing like, hey, person – Black man after black man after black man is being lynched on our television. Like we see it. Can you please, is one party going to try to do something about this? Um, That's where I, that's where I sort of come to them, um, meet them sort of where they are. I hate meeting racists where they are and I hate meeting sexist people where they are, but I'm willing to make an exception ahead of an election because it's that important. Yeah. Well, and the thing that the reason I talked about the Lincoln Project is because they had said something very interesting and they were talking about the importance of people understanding history and just civics, like basic civics classes don't exist anymore. And so a lot of Americans aren't even capable of looking at what's going on and seeing how this foundation is being laid 
toward fascism. And, yep. Yep. And, and because of the politicization of so many, you know, different words and concepts and ideas, you've got people throwing terms around without a real understanding of what that means and why it's being said. And it was so interesting. I'll just say two or three more things and then yeah. I too will quiet because I could talk about this stuff forever. But when I was in Germany, um, my husband and I were in Munich a few years ago and we went to the documentation museum which was the museum that basically documented the rise of the Nazis and um, and Hitler's rise to power. And it was so chilling to walk through there because all they did was put forth a historical account of how they came to power from like the 1940s mm-hmm. up until Reconstruction mm-hmm. afterwards. And as I'm walking, I'm realizing because all of our we lived in China for a year uh, in a very international community and all of the Europeans in our community would say Trump is very scary. And and this is what terrifies us. And we do believe you are moving toward fascism and all this. And I always kind of thought, oh, maybe that's just hyperbole. Right. But walking through that museum and watching that, I was like, no, this is exactly what they're talking about, but because I didn't have a historical context for that, I had learning to do in that. And it was terrifying to realize that. But the other thing with the Lincoln Project that they talked about was you have a man in office who is not willing to do what he does for the good of anybody but himself. And so if it benefits Donald Trump, if it benefits his campaign, if it benefits his reelection, He will do what he needs to do to get there. And that, you know, like being that kind of third party person for a really long time, I always had this, uh, you know, like, I'm just so tired of politicians. I'm so tired of their political nature. And now more than ever, I understand how important it is to have somebody who is willing to do what's good to unite a country. And how absolutely deadly it is to have the man in office who is in office. Yeah. I mean, he is following the fascist sort of playbook. It sounds right. Like, it sounds mm-hmm. so almost comical because it's something that, like, a Twitter troll would yell in all caps, right? Fascist, meh. And it's like, no, right. but, like, he actually is, though. So, like, he the, – the, the very clear steps up the sort of fascist ladder – are very are just perfectly Trump's personality is perfectly suited for them. Um, And so I don't think he's some political, you know, brilliant strategist. It just the the, the steps to fascism are just follow your like most self-centered, you know, desires and use the tools of the government to help you follow them. Um, That's pretty much what fascism is, you know, and so uh, and so we see him doing that. It's like you can stand them up next to each other and just it's a playbook, you know. Another thing worth mentioning, Jen, you reminded me, um, I was just recently in DC, um, back when you could still go to places and visit um the the National Museum of African American History and Culture that's there, which I believe was established under Obama. It was like one of the things he's most proud he's most proud of. Um going into that museum, they they narrate sort of the rise of the clan and of the sort of 
far, far, far right white supremacist movement following, you know, during Reconstruction. And I'm looking at the, you know, some of the dates on these pictures and some of the photos, and there are just, you know, it's the, the 50s and 60s, and there are young men, young men who were being indoctrinated um, so early in the 30s, 40s, 50s, so early, some of them, some of them have to still be alive today, you know, and we're marching with their, with their clan robes on and we're totally taken in with this and saw nothing wrong with it and are just normal white people today. Just normal. You know, I, I had a flashpoint when the Kenosha shooting happened with Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17. You know, that means he was eight or nine when Obama first fell victim to this birther conspiracy at the hands of Donald Trump for the first time. That means he was yeah. 12 or 13 when Donald Trump took office. So the notion that, th like, this is a, this is something that is indoctrinated into sort of a generation of people. Um, and it's terrifying that it's happening right now. It always has happened in our country. But the White House, the president, the leader of our country, the guy who stands in the White House and gives addresses on behalf of our nation, winks at those people. Um, and so it is. So to me, I have like a shudder when I'm in this museum in D.C. seeing like, oh, my God, look at all these young people that were KKK people. Oh, my God. Wait, they're still alive today. It's so hard to meet people who are clearly having saying racist things or saying sexist things uh, where they are when it comes to, to politics and meet them saying like, hey, oof, this is so troubling for me to hear, but I'm meeting you where you are because this is that important. But I really do think it is that important for our uh, for this upcoming election because things are shifting so much. Um, and I, like you said earlier, Jen, you know, this sort of, blatant sort of fascism that we're seeing coming from the white house and from the republican party that is a shift that we are that is being indoctrinated in the young kyle rittenhouses of the of the world of our country and in the next 10 15 20 years will be very 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 problematic for how we're moving forward as a nation and we have a chance to sort of nip that in the bud and restore some sort of at least a semblance of the sort of principles and foundational elements that this country was was premised upon. Not to say that they're perfect, because they are not. They are racist. They are sexist. They are all the things um, that are that are troubling. But all of that with fascism thrown on top is way way worse. And our two party system is doing what it can to address that via this sort of imperfect platform of biden and kamala harris so that's sort of what i that's sort of how i you know the big pitch of like hey this is this important but we know it is not what you want but it's way more important that we do this sort of uh this imperfect make this imperfect selection um to avoid some sort of you know some bigger um issues in the future the sort of very um crumbling of what makes us us which is which is sort of a weird thing to say don't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good as they say Jonathan I I feel like this has been the conversation that we absolutely needed to have and I'm really grateful that you have brought so much 
knowledge and um, just your insight to some of these real concerns that people have about this upcoming election. So um, I really appreciate you walking us through your thought process. Oh, it's, it's much appreciated. I am. And likewise, I love talking to you, too. Um, and I hardly ever get to talk about politics with people. So I was happy for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and like Tina was saying, like, this is a struggle for us. But we know right now we are less than two months away from the election. And given that we're in the midst of a pandemic, you know, for myself, I have been very easily out of the loop on political goings on. And I have to think that there are a number of people like me who are caught up in life and, you know, like not really sure what's going on to do. And maybe they think they're just going to stay home because none of this really matters. But I will say that what you said at the end, Jonathan, really compelled me even more is this idea of it's not even about who are you voting for or against. It's about what are we shaping for this country going forward? And that is becoming so apparent to me. This is a decision for what the future holds in this country. And so we have a look at Donald Trump's America and we have a choice to make. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, and this is, this is, you know, you're in good company. Most people don't start thinking about presidential elections until right around Labor Day. Um, just the summer, they, people are doing their own thing. You know, it might be a little bit different because we're all in lockdown, but now is the time where people are going to start paying attention and really thinking about who they want to vote for. Um, and I think it's on us to be all the all the more loud and vocal and, and clear about what we're saying. And it's not like you said, it's not um, it's bigger. It's bigger than this election almost. Um, but this election is important enough yeah. to make it to scare everyone as well. I mean, this is something that um, that we're going to think back on and 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 see what we did as a country to to uh to either fight against this or allow it again um and for those you know for those people who are whose lives aren't affected by politics quote unquote whatever that means um right right that will change if 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 uh donald trump is allowed to be elected again if if it you know those people who say they aren't affected by politics are lying anyway uh, or or they just don't know it um you know 100 about to it's about to be 200,000 people are dead in this country from covid-19 that's that was because of politics um and it didn't have to be that way and so i just this is our plea i guess you know and that's all we can do is continue to make it as forcefully as we can from now until november you know, you you said something earlier about like, don't make this even about Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter, but talk about like the substance behind that even, you know, and, and one of the right. things that I saw Trump speak on the other day that just, oh, it devastates me when I see this, you know, it's like the way he's framing criminalization, the way he's framing incarceration. Right. And and it was like, on one hand, you saw some movement, even from his administration, to um, commute sentences and, and start looking into those who were incarcerated unjustly. 
And then now it's like, oh, I'm the law and order president. And and those Democrats, they want to let people out of jail, dangerous people, you know, and he's like doing this whole right. spiel. And it's just like all this walking back of of things that I was feeling we were starting to get some traction with in terms of a national dialogue surrounding mass incarceration, sentencing, you know, and, and it just uh, it makes me and, sad. And, you know, to- to make you to comfort you a little bit, I'll just remind you, just remember there is a national dialogue and there are more of us that want these things than there are people who oppose them. Yeah. You know, there are more. If the polling all says it, you know, something like 80 percent of people are against the death penalty, something like, you know, 70 percent of people think there should be over that the prison system should be overhauled. The same amount think that policing in this country needs to be seriously reformed and so like we are in line with the majority but they're like i said earlier they're making it a an either or mm. um in you know lining up with the with the party platforms when they don't have to be and trump is not you know the media gasses trump up all the time saying that he's so he's this expert communicator but he's not good at being sly and slick you you alluded to it he even said the other day and he said it multiple times He'll be saying something about Black Lives Matter, and then he'll say, and then on the other hand, you have, and then he'll start to dis- describe criminals and looting and murder and all these things. And it's like, you really think those are the same people that th- these groups are the same people, and some of them are mar- like some of them are marching for protest for for you know in the streets, and then on their weekends they're looting, and the, these these are the people that are going to take over our country. He thinks truly that those things should be equated to each other. And so it is, um, Mm. he's not even good at it. He's not even good at hiding it. And so um, it is, it is disgusting. And we are, you know, he is making a very, very strong racist pitch. And it should tell you something that if one party is using clear racism you know your suburbs will not be calm anymore the criminals will come in and you won't be safe right that kind of language um it should tell you something about i mean if you don't know anything else about the parties that's enough for me to not vote for someone you know um and so yeah it is it is i'm scared just like you are and i am uh when the top cop in the in the country the attorney general says on camera on cnn no i do not believe that there's institutional racism or systemic racism in the criminal justice system i i i can't that to me is like that says it all like that i cannot support that party in fact that is someone with that sentiment is a danger to people who look like me because he is going to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt even if i'm at the other end of you know the bullet that gets shot because he doesn't think racism exists um and so it is it's it's never been we said at the beginning this is the most important election of our lifetimes i i suspect this will be the most important election in this country's history regardless of of what comes after hey i've got a really quick question yeah I want to ask this in a different way than we've asked it all year. This has been one of the segments of the podcast that we've added this year. Is there a way to find joy with regards to this political process as we 
are approaching election day? Yes. Are you asking me? Are you? Can I answer that? Yes. Oh my yes, goodness. Tina. Yes. 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 Tina, we're going to have a black vice president, a black woman <laughs> vice president. Come on now. Okay. Okay. She's a, like she is a. She went to HBCU. She's a. Isn't she like a AKA like or a, or a, a like so this is she so she uh th- that is my that's my Kamala Harris is my joy in this Kamala Harris is a former police officer or not police officer they say Kamala Harris is a cop uh she's a she's a, a district attorney and was the attorney general of California so like she was a part of this whole carceral system that I have such a problem with but she's about to be a heartbeat away from the presidency and the same reason that the same way I had a bunch of problems with a lot of the stuff Obama did, um, having a first uh, black woman as vice president, and and they've overtly said they're setting her up to be the next president as well, it to me brings me a good amount of joy um, because of because it's it's this will change the trajectory of our country, um, and um, you know I'm cutting to all the little the little black girls and brown girls who are watching Kamala Harris on TV and seeing crying, seeing that they'll never know that, that you weren't, that there, that, that there was a first black woman vice president. They'll never know that at, there was some point when there, this had never happened before, there will always have been a black woman vice president for these kids, for these little girls. And that is just, and, and boys. Um, and so that is, to me, that's where I get my joy from, you know, all, all policy aside, all that, all the stuff aside that you can, that you can, um, you can discard because it's, it is what we would want in a perfect candidate. And it is what we would want in someone we could a hundred percent support on a policy level. What this will do to, and for the country, having a black woman with some sense, someone with some sense, finally, um, <laughs> in as any black woman who has risen to this level in her career must have in order to get there um the way that white men very much do not have to have to get there uh see donald trump uh that'll be amazing it will absolutely be amazing so that's my that's my that's where i pull joy out of this you know i love that thank you of course well thank you so much for joining us and coming on to talk about this, was there anything else you wanted to say before we say goodbye? No, I just I, I so appreciate the uh, the invitation. April and I, uh, my co-host and sister uh, of our podcast, are looking forward to having uh, you two on uh, to speak to us. Uh, we we think we should have an all podcasters episode, and so that look for that in season three of of Black Ann. So we're excited. But thank you for so much for having me. Yeah. So tell us where we can follow you. Sure. Yeah. So um, our uh, podcast is called Black And, and you can follow us. Uh, our biggest presence is on Instagram, and it's uh, Black And Podcast, all written out, one word. Um, but you can download uh, you can download all of our past episodes, which are sort of freestanding, evergreen episodes, um, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and it's Black. And uh, it's ampersand, the the and symbol, all one word. You should be able to find it. But um, we also have links on our on our uh, Instagram as well if you can't find it. So, yeah, we're uh, excited about season three. 
thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.